0: Good morning, you can open your Bibles to the book of Haggai, and uh, if you're looking inside your bulletin, you'll see that it says Haggai chapter 3. The first person that find that, if you'll stand and raise your hand, I'll, I'll have you read that chapter for us. Yeah, there, we accidentally uh, overlooked Uh, Mistake in our bulletin. It says Haggai chapter 3. That obviously does not exist. Uh, There's only two chapters, uh, but let me tell you, they are a very loaded two chapters uh, tucked away at the end of the Old Testament. And we want to dive into those this morning. Let me begin by praying for the preach word and then we'll look at Haggai together. Father, we pray that you would open our spiritual eyes this morning. Help us to see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we, we know we need the gospel, so we pray that the gospel would come, not simply in words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our aim this morning is simple. We want to consider our ways. We want to consider our ways and repent. And we want to believe in God and His promises. And then we want to obey and watch God work. So we want to consider our ways and repent. We want to believe in God and his promises. And we want to obey him and watch him work. Have you ever bought a piece of furniture from Walmart? You know, the kind that they have a miniature version of built on the shelf. It looks nice. You think that would fit? perfectly in my living room, that, that desk there. And when you go to buy it, you realize it's in a cardboard box about a tenth of the size of the furniture that you're looking at on the shelf. And it's quite heavy. Well, you carry it home and you open up the box because you think this desk is going to look good in the corner of your living room, only to realize that there are 122 pieces of particle board Packed away in this cardboard box. Not to mention a giant bag of various metal and plastic doodads. You even followed the instructions perfectly through the first 23 of the 38 steps that it gave you to build this particle board desk. Until you got the hang of it. You figured out what these doodads do and where they go and how they fit. And I know what I'm doing at this point, so... I think I can handle it from here because I see those last 15 pieces and I kind of have an idea where they'll go. So you run with it from steps twenty-four to thirty-eight. Only to find that somewhere in those last steps you made a major mistake. And you're gonna have to do a you're gonna have to undo a lot of your particle board desk building. Well, the reality is, and unfortunately. This is what happens too often to us in our relationship with God. Though we begin with God, when things start going well, we set him aside, we set his word aside, and we begin to press forward without him. Well, I want to give you a little background to the book of Haggai and tell you how it is that this particle board desk illustration could possibly fit into these two chapters. Jerusalem was invaded by the Babylonians in 606 BC and many of its people from Israel were taken away into exile, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, those and that crew were all taken away into exile. That was in 606 BC. Well, 20 years later, 586 BC, Jerusalem is besieged again by the Babylonians. Well, why would they do that? Well, they came to finish what they started. And in 586 B.C., it was not only besieged but fell. The city was burned and the glorious temple of Solomon was destroyed. Well, as the Lord would have it, the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians in 538 B.C. So about 50 years later, led by a king named Cyrus, who allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem, even agreeing to help them rebuild. And though the foundations of rebuilding Jerusalem began upon their return, we know that the project of rebuilding the city and the city wall and the temple, it was hindered. It was hindered really for two reasons, selfishly by the people and providentially by God. So that in 520 BC, 18 years after they had returned home, Haggai preaches the message that we'll see this morning, encouraging the people of Israel, the people of Judah, to rebuild the temple. We know, according to Ezra, that the temple was rebuilt and dedicated less than four years after Haggai preached his messages. Haggai is, therefore, sandwiched between, if you can dial up Ezekiel's vision that God had given him of the temple being rebuilt... And what we know is the actual work and completion of the temple that we find in Ezra and Nehemiah. So Haggai's sandwiched between Ezekiel and then Ezra and Nehemiah. And as I said at the beginning of the sermon, though it's not three chapters long, the two are plenty for us to dig into. It is filled with rich instruction that's applicable to our lives today. And I've chosen to break the the book into three parts now. It really consists of four sermons, but two of them kind of overlap. and They're repetitive. And so I, I see three parts that the book is broken into, and it's the direction that we're going for today's sermon. The first is, consider your ways. And with considering your ways is repentance. The second is, take courage. The second part of the book is a, a message of taking courage. That's really the second and third sermons. And... Part of taking courage is putting our faith in God. And then the last piece is our obedience to God. And when we obey, we watch God do His work. When we obey, we watch God do His work. So we want to look at three parts. Repent, believe, and watch. Consider your ways, take courage, and obey. So if you will, join me in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehoshadak the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, and there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on the ground, excuse me, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands." Well, two times in those first 11 verses, we see God's instruction to us. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. The way of the Jews was kind of like building that particle boy desk. Setting the instructions aside and doing things their way. They were happy to move on without God's help. They had been freed from the Babylonians. That's what they wanted. They had been allowed to return home. And when they did, they forgot about God. Each individual had rebuilt his own home. And in 18 years, the people of a God, excuse me, the people of God adopted a me first mentality. Let me take care of myself first. And when time allows, even if it takes 18 years we'll consider rebuilding the temple. But what we find even in chapter 1 is they, the people are saying, it's, it's not yet time to rebuild the temple. we got a few more things that we need to take care of in our own lives. And though God was their God, they had ceased to consider God first. And they begin to operate in their own power, doing things their way. They begin to think about their individual interests rather than collectively considering God and His interests. Look with me back in verse 2. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And the word of the Lord came in response to their saying. Haggai the prophet said to them, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. This is God's instruction to the people of Israel. They've been out of exile for 18 years. They've returned home, and their instruction is consider your ways. What he meant by consider your ways is this. Consider what you've done for 18 years. Consider what you're doing right now, and realize that it's not right. Realize that it's not right. You need to think about what you've done. For 18 years, nothing had been done to the temple. The foundation had been laid, but it still was a pile of rubble. He says, consider your ways. Consider your ways was God's way of saying to them, repent. Repent of what you have been doing. Repent for what you've done. Repent for 18 years considering yourself and not considering me. We must always repent when we do anything our way. To exclude God from the equation is sin. To consider yourself before you consider God is sin. It's called idolatry. It's worshiping yourself rather than God. When you put yourself first and God in any position after that, it's sin. And it's exactly what the people of Judah were guilty of. For 18 years, They had considered themselves rather than God. This was their mindset. And we see it as sin. But it wasn't just sin. Quite honestly, it was crazy. It was foolish. It was mad to ignore the very one who had freed them from the Babylonians. Listen to how God responds to those who consider themselves first. Verse 6, you have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. So he warns them again in verse 7, consider your ways. And then more of the same continues. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. And then here we go. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. And then God explains why he would do all that. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky was withheld has withheld its due, and the earth has withheld its produce. He called for a drought on the land, the mountains, the grain, new wine, oil, everything that the ground produces: men, cattle, all the labor of their hands. God had frustrated the fruit of their labor for eighteen years was frustrated by God. Everything they attempt, attempted to accomplish, even things that you would consider honorable. Or not wrong, we're ending in failure. God would not allow them to prosper until they considered Him first. So long as we put ourselves in first place, listen to me, it is a guarantee that God will frustrate your ways. If you exclude God in any category, in any arena of life, God will frustrate. That arena. God has called his people to consider him first. God's command to consider our ways was a call to repentance. So let me ask Have you considered your ways? Have you considered your ways? When was the last time that you went before the Lord and asked him? What he desires for you in every arena of life. When was the last time you considered your ways? And let me ask an additional question. Not only have you considered your ways, but is God being considered first in your life? Before you do anything, is God being considered first? Well, my hope is that you can answer yes to both those questions. Yes. I have considered my ways. And yes, God has first place. He gets first consideration before I do anything. But, if you're anything like me, then you would have to confess with me that too often God is not considered first. And I find I'm doing life my way. Well, take courage. If... You're like me and you've answered no to either or both of those questions because even though we may not consider God and even though it is not acceptable to have the me first mentality that the people of Judah had for 18 years. Take courage because God is still faithful to his people. God is still faithful to his people. And we see a shift and we see God's faithfulness beginning in verse 12. First, notice the language change that we find from the first 11 verses to verse 12. This is what verse 12 says, and I want you to take note of the change. I'll emphasize. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. And Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord, their God, had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. One well, of the first 11 verses, maybe you heard the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. Maybe you heard that phrase several times. The God of armies but never did it say there until we get to verse 12. Suddenly, God is personal in verse 12. There's a shift in the mindset from the me first that ignored God to he is our God, he is their God. And we're reminded that he is not only our God, but that he is for us. And as we'll see later in the text, he is with us. Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant personally consider God in verse 12 and in their considering God the remnant of the Jews did two specific things they obeyed the verse of the Lord excuse me the voice of the Lord and they showed reverence to the Lord so two things happen as they consider God when we consider God two things happen we obey the voice of the Lord and we show reverence to the Lord but secondly I want you to notice. What God declares to his people in verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. Those are four very big words. I am with you. Had God ceased to be with his people for 18 years? That they couldn't remember that he was with them? For 18 years, upon return from exile, they built their paneled houses. They came up with excuse after excuse to not rebuild the temple of God. But that didn't keep God's presence from being with them. They just ignored it. They just chose to serve themselves first. But think about this declaration that God makes. I am with you. What sweet words can anyone utter, sweeter words, than to hear from God that I am with you. That I am with you. That God is with us. He is with us. So let me ask another question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is with you? Do you believe that He is with us? You should. You must. You must believe that God is with us. Believing in this reality changes our perspective. That is the great shift that we find in verse 12. And in verse 13, once they believed in the reality that their God was with them, they ceased considering themselves first and began to consider God. And considering God caused them to act, to obey His voice, to revere Him. Do you revere God? Are you obeying His voice? But there's still more of God in this great shift than we're inclined to give Him credit for. We see that He communicates very clearly that He is with His people. I am with you. And that that declaration causes obedience to His voice and causes reverence for His name. But I want you to see that there's more. Look with me in verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. God is the one who stirs our spirit to believe and act. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of his people to accomplish the work he had called them to do. Here are these people who have been freed from Babylon, returned home for 18 years, taking care of themselves, building their panelled houses, ignoring God, and God has to step in and intervene. God has to prove his faithfulness again by reminding them that He is with them. And only when God steps in and declares, I am with you, do the people awaken from their selfish stupor to give their attention to God, to begin to obey and work and trust. But even then, He has to stir their hearts toward Himself. The same work that they had tried tried to accomplish in their own power for 18 years and had consistently failed. And the same God, who a few verses earlier was frustrating the work of their hands, was now stirring their hearts to accomplish His work. Do you see man's role in all of this? They've done nothing. They've done nothing. But once... By God's doing, they had considered their ways and repented and had their hearts stirred by God. The real work began. Grace Church, I don't know if you see or hear what's being communicated in Haggai, but it's a simple lesson that we make so complicated. We can do things in our power good things, honorable things for a long time and get nowhere. But if we'll consider the reality that we're getting nowhere and repent of doing things our way and consider God and allow Him to stir our hearts, then the real work will begin. Then the real work will begin. All work Apart from our considering God, hearing His voice and obeying is in vain. But not only in vain, but it is, as we saw earlier, it's sin. It's sin to go about life ignoring God. The remnant had not accomplished in 18 years what God called them to do because they had not considered God first. Now, Haggai reiterates the same message found at the end of chapter 1 that we just read in the beginning of chapter 2. So it's a new sermon but he's saying the same thing. Carry on with me in chapter 2, the first five verses. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to, to, excuse me, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem... To you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Well, I want you to look. In verse 3, God commands Haggai to ask the following questions Who is left among you that saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? And does it seem to you like nothing in comparison? He was asking those who remember Solomon's temple in all its glory. Do you remember how majestic this temple was? Do you remember that the majesty of that temple caused Sheba to make the journey and see its fame and magnificence? Do you remember that she saw the glory of God and worshipped that temple? Well, 70 years had passed since they had gone into exile and returned home. So the number was probably few who could remember Solomon's temple In all its glory. Who could remember what took place with Sheba? Very few could remember. But it was no small recollection that Haggai was calling these few to remember. He was calling the remnant to remember. He was reminding them. Not of some great architecture that the temple was made from. Or the aesthetics or beauty of the building. But he was reminding them. Of his glory before they went into exile. That his glory was with them. But what they saw before them was but a shadow of its former glory. It seemed like nothing in comparison. That's why he was asking the question. See, all that they could see of the temple from their paneled houses was a pile of rubble. They couldn't remember its former glory. They had forgotten. And so what Haggai's doing here, just 50 days after he had preached his message and had stirred their hearts, God had stirred their hearts, he's, he's preaching the same message 50 days later, just like the original sermon. And he's preaching the same message with the same truth that God is with them. Now why, after God had stirred their hearts 50 days later, would their hearts have to be stirred again? Because that's who we are. That's what we're like. We have to be reminded again and again and again that God is with us. That He's for us. That we don't have first place. He does. And I want you to see what God says to them. He says, take courage. Keep working. I am with you. Take courage. Keep working. I am with you. We need a constant gospel reminder in our lives or else we will set God aside like the instructions on that desk and begin to falter. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to those around you. And if we will continue to consider God first, believe, revere, and obey, I'm confident that we will see the same God work among us that worked among the remnant in Haggai's day. Listen to how God works for his people they just have to consider God first and obey and listen to how He works this should cause us to tremble verse 6 of chapter 2 for thus says the Lord of hosts once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth the sea also and the dry land I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I don't know if you... are heard or read all that but it was full of gospel truth it had the aroma of calvary written all over it listen to the promises that god makes his people in chapter 2 in verse 4 he promises to be with us he repeats that in verse 6 in verse 5 he says that the holy spirit will be in our midst In verse 6, he promises to shake the heavens and the earth. In verse 9, he says he's bringing greater glory. And in verse 9, he says he'll give us peace. Are those not the same realities that we find in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? That he'll be with us? That he'll give us his spirit in our midst? That he'll shake the heavens? That he'll bring greater glory? And that he'll give us peace? Now remember the glory of Solomon's temple. How beautiful it was and the effect that it had on Sheba. That temple now laid in ruins. Imagine the pile of rubble that it was. And for 18 years, God's people would walk by that pile of rubble and do nothing. They would just see the rubble. And it didn't stir their hearts. They were unaffected by it. The ruined temple wasn't a priority because they hadn't considered God. They had lost sight of His glory. But God says in verse 7, He will fill this house with His glory. And not only that, but He says, I'll fill it with greater glory than before. Look at verse 9. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now the temple, excuse me, for the temple to be rebuilt, it would represent what the previous temple represented. The dwelling of the glorious presence of God. It represented God's glorious presence. Well... Friends, I want you to know that that first temple that was crushed by the Babylonians in 586 is just like the death of Christ who was crushed for our iniquities. But a day of greater glory was coming for that old temple in Jerusalem. God was going to shake the heavens and the earth and rebuild that temple with the wealth of the nations. And in the same way that the heavens and earth shook in those days, it shook in the day of Christ, splitting a giant gravestone in two. And God's greater glory was revealed when Christ burst forth from the grave, conquering sin and death, causing the angels in heaven to erupt into deafening shouts of victory like the world has never heard. No greater glory has the world ever known than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this rebuilding of the temple was only a glimpse of what was to come. So when God says greater glory is coming, he's not talking about a temple made of stone. He's talking about the return of his son Jesus from the grave. Like the temple was destroyed, it was rebuilt. And like Christ was crucified, he rose from the grave. But I want you to see another connection that we find in Haggai. Just like those old temples in the Old Testament, we too are ruined. We're ruined. Right now, as I look out, and you look at me, we're just piles of rubble. We're just piles of rubble, and we'll stay piles of rubble unless something happens. Unless something happens. Unless the God of the universe promises that He can raise us to greater glory, as He did His own Son, and we must believe. We must repent of our sin, take courage that God is able to rebuild what we cannot, and without fear, believe that He will raise us up again. This is our only hope. Or can you continue to ignore God and work out your me first mentality trying to hopelessly attain to some form of glory that resembles nothing of God's true glory? Listen to me. You can work yourself into a frenzy and you'll never scratch the surface of any kind of real glory. I don't care what your fame and wealth is on this earth. I don't care how bright your mind is. I don't care how many friends you've got. You will not touch God's glory with all your effort. But if you'll realize you're a pile of rubble in desperate need of God to act, believing that he has promised that he will have this temple rebuilt for his own glory, then then you can taste his glory. Look with me in verse 18 through 19. He's preaching his third sermon he continues we looked at the first half of his third sermon but i'm going to skip down to the end of it verse 18 he says do consider from this day onward from the 24th day of the ninth month from that day when the lord excuse me when the temple of the lord was founded consider so he's mentioned consider two more times and this is what he says is the seed still in the barn even including the vine the fig tree the pomegranate and the olive tree It has not borne fruit. Yet, from this day on, I will bless you. He's saying, remember all those frustrating days when all your labor came to nothing. He said, from this day on, that's not going to be the case anymore. From this day on, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. That's God's faithfulness, not our labor. And two months later, Haggai preaches again, asking the remnant to consider believe that God will bless them, reminding them that our old ways are unclean before God, they accomplish nothing, and our only hope is in repentance of our ways and putting faith in Him and His promises. And then we come to the end of Haggai, verse 20. The fourth and final sermon. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, one, by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord, the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. It is here that I'm convinced we must give the book of our attention. I know we've spent some time, but I, I want to say just a few things here. And as we walk away, as we look at the book of a Haggai again and again, we need to give attention to these last verses. These last four verses. His second sermon of the day. If if Pastor Jordan was a prophet in the Old Testament, this would be him because he squeezed in two sermons in one day, right? This is his second sermon of the day. And this is what he says. This might sound like confusing language. Nobody outside of God ultimately knows what God used Zerubbabel to do. But here in the text, we find God saying, He will make Zerubbabel his signet ring. Did anybody else catch that? He vanished, Zerubbabel, I'm talking about Zerubbabel, vanished from the historical record at this point. We don't know anything about him except he's listed in Matthew 1 in the lineage of Christ. But we know nothing about him. God said, I'm going to use you as my signet ring, and then we know nothing else about Zerubbabel. We just know God made that statement about him. But here's the significance. Zerubbabel's grandfather was Jehoiakim also a king in the davidic line who had greatly displeased god so zerubbabel's grandfather had greatly displeased god therefore god curses jehoiakim in the book of jeremiah chapter 22 verse 24 you ought to write that reference down if you're taking notes jeremiah 22:24 i'll read it to you but i want you to see what it says this is what this is god's curse to zerubbabel's grandfather He says, as I live, declares the Lord, even though Caniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. Now listen. There is a ton, ton being communicated there. The curse was God said he would remove... Zerubbabel's grandfather, from his finger. He says, I'll take this promise, this seal of what I said I would do, and I'm going to remove it from you. And so it almost appears that the Davidic covenant that God made with his people was being revoked. He promised. Eternally, the, David's family would sit on the throne. And suddenly, there's a king in that line that so greatly displeased God that he says, I'm going to take that, you know, that promise I made that, that I sealed with that ring? I'm, I'm going to take that ring off. That's what he says in Jeremiah twenty two twenty four, 24. And seemingly, his promise to establish David's house eternally seemed to fall apart. But we know that the sins of men, including our own, could not thwart the unconditional promise of God to bring about the Messiah from the line of David. David's own sin couldn't do that. And God's faithfulness to his promises proved that. And Zerubbabel, the heir of David's throne and predecessor to Christ, was the chosen guardian of the chosen people of God, the rebuilder of God's temple, and the restorer of dignity to the line of David. We find evidence of this fulfilled in the promised lineage in Matthew chapter 1 that I mentioned earlier. You'll find Zerubbabel's name there. You'll find his very wicked grandfather there as well. The promise to be made in the form of a signet ring was a reestablishing of God's faithfulness to his promise. So when he says to Zerubbabel, I'll make you like a signet ring, he's saying, I'm going to put the ring back on. Not because God ever was unfaithful, but the kings were. And God's saying, despite your unfaithfulness, I'm going to remain faithful. Despite your sin, I'm still going to carry out what I promised I would carry out. The signet ring was not only the symbol of the king, but it carried with it an irreversible act. Let me tell you what that ring is. It's Christ. It's Christ. He was saying to Zerubbabel, Christ will still come from your line. He will still come and accomplish what I said he would accomplish. He will still come and restore you to myself. He will still come and see that the temple is rebuilt to its greater glory. He was promising them Christ. He was giving them Christ. No man could reverse it. And the truth is, God couldn't reverse it. He didn't want to reverse his promise to save his people through his son, Jesus. And like Zerubbabel, if we read that last phrase one more time, It says this, I will make you like a signet ring for I have chosen you. Well, there's a tie. There's a tie between the words, I am with you and I have chosen you. I am with you and I have chosen you. Listen to me. When God makes that statement, I have chosen you, he does it with the signet ring called Christ. And when he gets you, when he chooses you, it cannot be reversed. And that is our hope. And that is what we cannot ignore. Which is why we should never consider ourselves before we consider God. Consider your ways and repent. Take courage and believe. God is with us. Then obey and watch God work. Let's pray.